There's another one you don't want to hear. Frankly, the do I. Right now on the Power Chord Hour, we are talking to producer and musician Gordon Raphael. And uh, Gordon was a Strokes producer for the Modern AGP. Their debut is This It and their follow-up Room on Fire. And uh, the band's Modern Age EP and their highly influential full-length Is This It both turned 20 this year, which is insanely, it's crazy to think that. But uh, I'm very excited to talk about the uh, man who was there to basically record a modern classic, a favorite to a lot of us. And uh, yeah, I'm excited to get into the bits and pieces of it. Gordon, man, how are you? I'm doing good. Thanks for having me on. I've been, uh, you know, I've been really excited to do this. And what I want to start with before we even get into uh, the records and the anniversary and all that, I want to get into uh, really what what got you your start in music. I mean, obviously, I'm sure you were a musician before you started uh, producing other bands and stuff, you know, like. What was your first instrument? Like, what age did you really start getting into music? Like, when? where did that passion come from for you? Um, I guess when I was a kid and I heard the Beatles albums and Jimi Hendrix and The Doors, uh, back when those albums were new, uh, to date myself, yes, <laughs> um, I started playing piano and electric organ, and I joined a band when I was about 13 and never looked back. You know, it was always going to be a rock and roll life for me, playing gigs, writing songs, uh, just playing music and being around musical people was what I wanted to do from that age ever since. And I mean, like, where does where does production come in the picture for you? Were you someone who originally, were you working, did you want to record other people's bands? Did you kind of start doing it just to, like, as a means of recording your own? Like, where did that start coming into play for you? Well, I was in a band when I was about 18 years old called Medusa up in the countryside near Seattle. And the guy in the band could record all his own songs, like on a four track, he could make incredible recordings. And so I thought if I could learn how to record with a four track reel to reel tape machine, then I could write really cool songs and I could be a composer. And, you know, I, I learned how to record so I could do my own songs. I never thought I would re- be an engineer or producer for anyone else. Oh, wow. That, uh, you know, like that always interests me. People kind of like start on a four track like that. Like I've played with them a little bit, but not a ton. Like, was it easy to pick up right away to like record your own stuff? Or was that kind of a, uh, was that like a whole kind of lesson well, in itself? I, I kind of already learned how to play keyboards. That was a trick. And then I got my hands on synthesizers, like analog synthesizers with Moogs and ARP Odyssey So they're covered with knobs and switches, and it was a bit technical. So it took me a few years to really get the hang of that. And then I thought, wow, you know, I'm pretty good with technology. I can make technology sound musical and interesting. So it took me a while to get the tape recorder just because I was so impatient to make my music that I would, like, forget about the levels, and I would just sort stuff and accidentally erase things. So it took me a few years to really get the tape recorder down. That's a, uh, yeah, that, that always interests me, including like when you look now, like, I mean, that, at, that at one point, that was your home recording. That was what you could do, you know, like 
that was technology at its like highest and it's uh i don't know yeah i mean not too many people had four track reel-to-reel tape recorders hanging around their house like you know everybody had cassette machines maybe and their dad might have had a stereo reel-to-reel my dad did but like to have a four track it was really special and um, you always thought that, wow, you wish you could be in a big studio with a 24-track, two-inch machine. But with four tracks, at least you could pile on ideas and hear yourself, you know? That comes into the question, too, and I was going to ask you later, but I feel like this is a good time for it. Are you someone then, I mean, are you more of an analog guy when it comes to recording? Are you someone who is very much more into the, you know, you have, it, there's a more of a, soul there it just sounds better than a lot of the digital stuff like do you have a preference on that yeah well you know i like to listen to music and play music that's kind of you use your hands you touch an instrument now that instrument could be a digital synthesizer it could be an analog synth it could be a guitar or a drum so i kind of like analog human music but for a long time, I fought against computers. Like, my, I, I, can, I, can I swear on your show? Or oh, I, okay. go ahead, man. Drop drop as many F-bombs okay. or whatever. When I was about maybe 25 and people were starting to use Pro Tools and computers, I said, you're fucking kidding me. You're telling <laughs> me you're going to watch TV while you play music. Now, that doesn't make any sense to me, dude. Okay? So that was my attitude for a long time. And then eventually... I tried Pro Tools, and I could go from four or eight tracks to having 30 tracks, like right away, like, oh, 30 <laughs> tracks. I could pile up so many sounds and so many voices on 30 tracks that I learned that, oh, yeah, if you do digital recording right and you use really good microphones and really good pianos and rooms and great musicians, that a computer can capture that very well. And I don't think you lose anything. These days especially, you know, if you've got good analog equipment like microphones and keyboards and really good skills, a computer is not going to get in your way. That's what I think. That's that's a really good point, I think, including where we're like where we're at now. And kind of funny too, like I'm thinking about it, but like when you did finally get that freedom of going from like four tracks to having, you know, like, like you said, you got like 30, 40 or whatever. Like, did you, yeah. do you feel like at a time though, creatively, like, did you ever go overboard with that when you were able to like throw in more ideas uh, and stuff? I already went overboard on the four track <laughs> because you, you could, you could bounce stuff down, you know? And True. I had this mixer and I had all these effects. Like I had, echo machines and flangers and phase shifters and distortion pedals and reverb. And I like to put those effects on every sound in different ways. So, you know, I already went, I went overboard as a beginning tendency. <laughs> like I'm going to put as much stuff and as many crazy sounds as I can all the time. And I got in trouble for that. Like people said, like, we can't really listen to your music. It's just crazy. You know, it's not even music. It's just some noise. So, you know, I learned how to do things in a bunch of different ways, but I still like crazy sounds. That's for sure. I think that that's probably a big part of what comes into like producing. I know you said, yes, you started to record your own stuff, but I feel like that, like you're adventurous and you like to play with things and you like to play with pedals and sounds and stuff. And I feel like that's very important for a producer. 
Yeah, I mean, I had probably two decades of experience, and I was working every day. Like, I just didn't want to do anything except record my own songs. You know, I had these synthesizers that could make the most incredible sounds, and I was singing and playing distorted guitars, and there's nothing more fun to me than that. So it was like two decades of heavy experimentation and lots of work before some other band said, like, hey, man, we heard you know how to use a tape recorder. You want to record our band? And that happened in New York for me. And quickly, I had a job, a new job that I never thought of. I was a music producer for other bands. And how long were you doing it before you uh, started, when you worked with The Strokes? At that point, how long had you been producing bands in New York? Uh, really, actually, only a, about a year. Oh, wow. Um because it was like I was living in Seattle, working on my own music, having my own band. I went to New York with my own band, and I got a studio to work on my own music. And suddenly I was kind of like going broke because the difference of living in Seattle and the difference of living in Manhattan <laughs> was astronomical. And just when I thought I was going to really have to give up music and like I had lost the game, then all of a sudden bands started coming to me and offering me money to record them. And so it was like one year of me recording band after band after band that the Strokes walked into my life. Wow. That, and that's amazing, too, that you just kind of, by the sounds of it, yeah, you like just fell into it. Like it was never the plan to be this producer. I mean, like you said, I mean, at the beginning, you're just doing it for yourself. And to fall in like that, that is amazing. <laughs> it's very strange. I'm still dealing with the repercussions of that because I'm still trying to do my own. I'm trying to balance doing my own music, even this day and age, you know, against like, oh, this band over in California wants me to work on their music. And there's another band in London and one in Brazil. And so I have to really be careful balancing my time between being a professional producer and enjoying it and doing a really good job with the band. Because I would hate to do a, a bad job and have somebody say, man, you wrecked my song. Like, that would be terrible. So when I do work with other people, I give them all the respect as if, if somebody working with me. You know, I'd want to be treated per, pretty uh, respectfully if I'm showing my own ideas and paying for someone to help me. So yeah, that's, that's my scene right now. That's uh, I mean, it, it is funny because I feel like that you obviously have a gift there that uh, people, you know, so many bands want you to record, but it is funny that, yeah, 20 years later, it's like a gift and a curse of like, I'm trying to do my own thing, but, you know, everyone still kind of wants to, uh, you know, wants to work with me. And then going... It's, 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 much, it's much more of a gift, I have to say. <laughs> you know, the fact that a band of 20-year-old kids calls me from, say, Brazil, and they love the Strokes' first album, and they want to see if I will work on their music. You know, that's a pretty much of a gift. And it's only when I, like, I lose control of it, and I just work and work and work, and I don't say no, and I just want to do the job. That's kind of like my own, I just have to balance it. It's not really a curse. It's just something I got to keep doing right. That, that makes sense. With uh, going back to the Strokes, um, like, where was... Did you meet them before hearing them? Did you hear them live and then meet them after? Like, what was your introduction to the band? Um, as I have made clear, I had my own band called Absinthee, and we were looking for a booking agent to get us shows around the East Village in New York where we were living at the turn of the century, around 99, 2000. 
So somewhere around maybe September 2000, this booking agent shows up named Carrie Black, and she says, come on down to the Luna Lounge. I'm having a party. There's going to be a couple bands playing, and Gordon, one of the bands might even need a producer. You know, you don't even know. Let's go check it. Let's go check out my party. So me and my band went down to see if this booking agent could do cool stuff. And there were two bands playing that night, one of which I really liked a lot, and they were called Come On. And then this other band came on afterwards called The Stroke. <laughs> and they were pretty good. Like, they weren't my favorite band of the night, but I had a little business card, and I went to both bands, and I said, hey, man, I've got a studio down the street. I can make really cheap demos, and I, I'm supposed to be pretty good. You might like the demo. Give me a chance. And the band I really liked never called me. And a day later, Albert Hammond Jr. called me up with this business card I gave him and came to look at my studio. And that's how we got it together. Oh, okay. So your first, uh, your first uh, like talking to them then was Albert. He came down, kind of looked at the place, and obviously liked what he saw. If they, uh, if they, yeah. Like, how long after that did the rest of the guys come into the picture? Well, I had saw the strokes at the Luna Lounge, and then I was waiting to, you know, they went off stage, and I was always perched by the stage waiting for some guitar player to come out and start clearing up their pedals. And then I'd spring on them and say, hey, dude, good show. Here's my card. So uh, Albert and Nick were on the stage cleaning up the guitar pedals, when I approached both of them that night and Albert got the number and he, he came to my studio the next day and checked it out. And he told me recently that he actually ran home to tell Julian, cause they were living together that the studio looked really cool. So, oh, nice. um, yeah. And basically I think within a week we were recording. Wow. And then when you guys did start recording it, how long did it take to record that, uh, to record the modern age? I had a, a deal for them. It was called a three-day, three-song deal over a weekend. So they came on Friday. They stayed Saturday and Sunday. And then it's Sunday night. I kicked them out. I said, dude, <laughs> you know, your three days are up. I'm really tired. You guys worked the hell out of me. Uh, pretty good job. See you later. Here's your demo. And that was it. Wow. So when when they came in, I mean, that, that song a day, that, that makes sense. Were they pretty prepared when it came to recording or did they still have to like kind of work on the songs a little as you were putting them, you know, as you were recording them? They were pretty damn prepared. I would say, you know, they were probably working on a few lyrics or something here and there, but, uh, there was no messing around. This was a very hardworking band, uh, extremely dedicated. Like they were so on it. You know, if you think that, they were like the seventies bands that like smoke drugs and just sit around on the couch and just like laugh all the time. These guys were just listening every moment and they were totally on my case to like make this better. We're going to play this better. You know, they were just really hardcore about how concentrated they were on their music. And they always have been, I've always known them to be that way. On that, uh, like on that first EP compared to like what they were kind of live at the time, like, was that a good representation like of that, you know, on the EP and I love it like that. It definitely has like a raw loose feel at times. Like it has this really good, I think it's the charm of it, but like, was that a representation of what they sounded like live at that point? Or did they really like push themselves in the studio to kind of get that, you know, well, to sound that way? I think that they, you know, 
they could sound that way when they concentrated and when they like, no, we've got to do it again. Like they really focused and they worked very hard. So like in a show, of course, they play a song and it takes three minutes. In the studio, that song might take two or three hours to play because they're playing it and they're trying to get one part right and they're trying not to make a mistake, you know. So they're really pushing themselves to get it as good as they can do. I wasn't editing. Like, I wasn't chopping up drums and moving them around. It was like they were just doing it and then doing it again until it was right. And, uh, yeah, that was the theme. And the sound isn't that different than the first album it's just the first album we had seven weeks to work on and not just three days so there was just even more attention to detail the sounds were very similar the microphones were similar you know they just were really on it and actually like what microphone including for julian like i love i love the sound of the mic he's using on that and i'm assuming it's not just like an sm57 is that like an old like vintage mic you were using. Do you do you remember what he uh, recorded vocals on? I, of course, I remember. It's like you know, it's a big part of my life. The sound of Julian's vocals, and so it was this Audio Technica condenser microphone, which you know was about a three hundred three hundred fifty dollar mic at the time. Uh, but he loved it. He just loved it. Um, later on the album, I tried him on a three thousand dollar Neumann German condenser mic was like this is the shit julian look at this because i don't even want to look at that i don't even like the look of that i don't want that near i said try it try it and he tried it he said get it away from me and get that other mic back please you know so <laughs> he knew what he liked okay. yeah 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 he knew what he liked and uh he just thought it was a cool sound and it was, at the time i think it's one of my best microphones that i owned at the studio and we were using like SM57s and Sennheiser 421s and uh, a couple German um, dynamic microphones, Bayer Dynamic for the drums. Wow! Yeah, that that is that is neat. So you, that's interesting too. For three days, like I was wondering, but it sounds like there was some time put into that, and you guys were very prepared. Because sometimes I talk to people too, where it's like, oh, you record the CP or album like over a weekend. And it's very rushed and and maybe not even fully realized. It sounds like you really like you had your stuff together. They had their stuff together. Like like very hard working for those three days. Like everything sounds like it went pretty smooth. I'm sure that if Julian was sitting next to me, he would say, "Oh man, it was rushed." You know, I'm sure he wished he had a week to do it. He always, you know, from my working with him, he always wanted as much time as possible. But for me. It was like, wow, these guys work harder than almost any other band in three days. They really weren't letting anything go by. And a lot of bands, they go like, yeah, it's close enough for jazz. Oh, it's allowed to be loose. You know, it's okay. The mistake kind of sounds okay. You know, but these guys were like, no, do it again. I heard the hi-hat do this. I heard the guitar do that. It's, they were really dedicated. And then how long after, like you said, you kind of they came in, did it three days they left with their EP. Like how long after that had you, did you like kind of find out it was getting, you know, it was getting a little uh, attention for them. You know, labels were, were finding out about it and stuff. When did that, like, did you realize like, Oh, like this band's starting to gain a little traction? Well, maybe a month, or, a month later, uh, I was surprised to see Albert on St. Mark's place in New York city. And he had a box of CDs. Uh, they had actually pressed, 
CDs of the demo and they were trying to get like the rec- local record stores to sell them. And I thought that was really uh, ballsy because local record stores on, in that area were really mean and like, no, you know, we, we got plenty of good music. We don't need your new stuff. But he was going up to the, all the record stores trying to get their CDs in it. And then, you know, I think I read about it in NME or something. Like, you know, like this band, this record got signed in England or got popular, got voted a number one record of the week. And so I already knew things were going weird and kind of cool because nothing I'd ever worked on before had ever gotten that kind of attention. And right away, it was like very good attention, very good reviews. And so, I don't know, I don't know, it didn't take very long for there to be this buzz going on about the band. That had to be surreal for yourself then, too. Like, it's something like just this band that you were kind of working on, and all of a sudden you're reading in it in, like, publications and stuff. Like, that That for you yeah. had to be a little odd. It was, you know, it was like a miracle. Like, oh, my God, something I worked on, they're writing about. This has never happened. And so that was really, it was really exciting. Um, I was a little like, what do you mean? You get, you put out a demo as an album. I mean, you put this out without remixing it and touching it up and we could have fixed it up a little bit, but no, no rough trade in England. They liked it just the way it was. They thought that was the charm. Did they, did they get more attention in the beginning? Like over, over in the UK was like that originally where all, all the attention in the beginning, every bit of it was from England. Like they were, they had a record out, they had a deal, they had a record out, they had reviews, they did a little tour, all while New York slept. New New York had no idea about any of that. It wasn't really? only until like all that buzz when it finally added up. It's like the New York labels were like, what? There's a band that signed from our town and they toured in England and they got good reviews and people are talking about them. Who's this? We got to find them. We got to find this band. Where are they? (laughs) That's how it was. (laughs) That's insane. I mean, I like, and and this is all like secondhand. I mean, I was, I was much too young at that time and didn't, didn't like know like how they started, but to like hear that, that's insane. Like, so the, the, like New York music scene really wasn't that like warming and welcoming to them at the, in the beginning, it sounds like. I'm going to give you the real shocker. Are you ready? Kids playing guitars was not anything that any label in New York wanted to hear about. That was a music that was no longer selling. You know, in 1989 and 91, Nirvana was making a very big commercial thing with guitars. By 1999, guitars were so far down the chain and so far over you know especially in this kind of retro style that they were doing it was like you know they were sounding like the stooges or the velvet underground or something else you know from a long time ago there's no reason new york would have paid attention to that if it wasn't like this giant roaring buzz from the uk Wow, I did I did not know that. That's also credit to the UK apparently for really kind of getting things, uh, you know, having their ear to the ground too, and, and realizing that, including back then, because really, I mean, I know the internet and stuff existed at that point, but like still, you know, not as not as readily of people just sharing music back and forth. That's pretty neat. That like, no way. yeah, like over there, You're they right. they get this three song, like you said, demo basically too. I mean, you know, it's called an EP, but yeah. it is basically a demo. 
And uh, yeah, right. for them to pick up like that is is just absolutely amazing. They yeah, there was no NME magazine wasn't an online mag. They didn't have online magazines at that time. So this is all you print. know. You could do you could do emails and you could like look at certain websites, but it wasn't it wasn't like the internet we have now. But interestingly, here's the the catch: by the time the album started coming out in, you know, the, is this it? The internet was like suddenly for the first time, a music communication tool. So I would think from my little research and my remembrance, the strokes were the very first band that was kind of like buzzed about on the new media of the internet. That's amazing. That is really, that is yeah. really cool. You guys were in a transitional yeah like really in a transitional period of, I mean, so many different things, how you record music, how we basically digest music, distribute it. Like all of that is, is very interesting. You guys were in a, which, which I think we'll get to in a minute with uh, is this it? I, I'd love to talk about some of this stuff more, but when it came to, is this it too? Uh, how long after then, like they're getting buzz and stuff. When did they come back to you and go like, Hey, like we want, you know, like we want to work with you on a full length. Um, let's see if we worked for three months or something, like, let's say March, April, May, March, April, and May we worked. So they must've come back, you know, somewhere around February, you know, of 2001 and said, you know, we were going to, we're going to make this album now and we got to take a whole bunch of studio days, show us your calendar. Now block out all this time and we're going to come in here and I never had anyone block out my, you know, my calendar for three months before. That was like a real strange feeling, grabbing the pen <laughs> and making exit all the boxes, uh, you know. You know, that's a good point, too. I mean, at that point, how like what was the longest recording session you had done then before that? Because I'm thinking probably not three months. Probably uh, three weeks, three weeks, probably three. Uh, we were working on albums for like three weeks at the level that I was recording albums, you know, I wasn't recording signed bands with major label budget. I was recording the neighborhood bands and they would bring, maybe they'd work for a week and take a couple weeks off and come back for another week. Like they saved their money. It was really like that. So then um, when you, a, yeah. like when you find out, then you're doing the three month thing, you know, I mean, they're, they're like, there's all this buzz, like, like really you're realizing probably, that this is something, you know, the biggest thing you've done at that point, like, was that exciting to you or was that kind of nervous at that point when all these things like basically sound like they're tumbling together where like, if you, if you would have told yourself five months prior to this, like all these things that were going to, or when you're recording the modern AGP, even like what would unfold? Like, were you ready for that? Well, when I recorded the modern AGP, I was just, I was kind of impressed how good the band was, but I was sad for them these kids are playing music from another generation. They're so far beyond the time. Like they're just, this, this demo is just going to sit on my bookshelf or with all the other demos I've made. And, you know, I felt a little sorry for them. I did not expect that something good was going to happen. Okay. Now when things turned around and suddenly this was one of the most exciting music stories of the year and we were about to make an album I interpreted it as pure fun and pure excitement. Like I was just jumping and bouncing off the wall. On the other hand, those guys 
even though they were much younger than me, they were going like, okay, we have to be real serious here. You know, we have this one chance and we better do the best job we possibly can. And I hope everybody's going to like what we make. So they took it as like excitement plus pressure. And I took it as excitement plus pure fun. That's cool. You got to enjoy it. Like that. It wasn't like, oh, my God, I'm overwhelmed. Yeah, I was like, wow, this is so great. I got a little overwhelmed by the amount of work I had to do. Like, I seriously had a bit of a breakdown near the end. But um, it wasn't like going into it, it was more like seven weeks to do an album. We're going to have a great time. And, you know, all of it just went really nicely. It was a very good vibe. It was very collaborative and positive working experience for sure. Did you guys end up recording Is This It at the uh, At Shore same studio you did the Modern AGP, or did you record somewhere else? Nope, we did it at my studio. They just loved the sound. They thought this was the sound they want, you know? Don't don't break what's not broken, I mean, again, with that uh, EP. I mean, the, the idea, too, I mean, that they're getting that much buzz off it. It's like, yeah, maybe we don't. I'm sure they had that idea, too. Like, the way you did it, and, I mean, I, I love the production on these records. I love what you did. I mean, I'm sure they had that idea too, where like, if not a lot of guitar bands are out at that point, like you obviously got, it sounds like you got what they were doing where maybe other producers maybe won it. Yeah. They tried other producers in other studios and, uh, they didn't feel comfortable. And, and when they're not comfortable, they can't do their work. You know, musically. I mean, did you kind of, cause like you were saying, I mean, totally the, the, uh, obvious ones, like, the Velvet Underground, the Stooges, you know, influences like that. I mean, like, musically, you kind of got where they were coming from. Like, were you into all those bands and whatnot as well? Yeah, but I got, I mean, I am like a Stooges and an Iggy and a Velvet Underground and a Bowie fan, like, from all my life. And I'm going, like, why do these kids who are 20 and 21 years old at the time, why do they even know about those bands? Like, nobody really talked about those bands, even when those bands were active. You know, the Stooges and the Velvet Underground were not high-selling popular musical acts. You know, they weren't like the top of the... They weren't on the radio. They weren't all all over the music magazines, you know? So it was really odd for me to hear these young generation playing this music that was like the music I listened to. (laughs) (laughs) No, that that makes it... And you know, it also like to show just how big is this it? I mean, the strokes in general and like that whole like revival and stuff that came along with it. Like for me personally, it's almost weird hearing that stuff. Cause I look at, I'm 28. So like from the other side of it, by the time I kind of realized the strokes and everything, like none of that was off. You know what I mean? Like guitar bands and stuff were fucking huge. So like to think of that reinterest and stuff that they sparked off this, that you were also a part of, I mean, is absolutely, it, it blows my mind. Like to think there's a time where it's like, yeah, like people don't care, you know, that, that people forgot about these bands. I know at that point, I mean, hell, the Stooges were broken up for how many decades, you know, Velvet Underground and all that. But uh, yeah, it's a, uh, it, I don't know. It's, it's just, that's more of a comment, I guess, but just to uh, think of that. Yeah. How uh, that stuff wasn't so normal back then and how it kind of all like changed after that record. But I did want to talk about like we uh, like we were kind of talking about earlier, and you said you kind of came around to digital at this point. Um, is this it? I mean, is this were you recording mostly analog? Is this digital at this point, or uh, like like how were you recording again, this again? 
all the time I was in New York, you know, I, I left Seattle for New York around the end of the 90s, 98. And as soon as I got to New York, I got involved in a studio that had a computer as the recording device and the best preamps and microphones, just like they used on Rolling Stones albums and Beatles albums and Led Zeppelin albums. The actual analog equipment was the same as what all the best rock and roll records in the world were ever made on. But it wasn't going to a tape recorder. It was going into uh, Logic and Pro Tools in an old G4, which was a new G4 at the time, um, using a Pro Tools interface. So I had the best analog equipment to record the strokes, you know, API preamps, Neve preamps, uh, Avalons, all kinds of stuff, but it was recorded on a computer. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, so like for you with that, um, including in those early days with that recording it to the computer, were there issues a lot with logic and pro tools? Like I've talked, I, I, I like talking about this with producers from that era. Cause I've talked to a few who just say it was a nightmare, including with pro tools in like the early 2000s, kind of the beginning of those. Did, did you run into a lot of issues recording that record with it? I was lucky because the first studio I had where I moved to New York and I answered an ad in the Village Voice and I got involved in a studio with a computer genius who is also a rock and roll musician. And he set up his studio in around a... Macintosh computer, a Power Mac was right before the G4s were coming out, with Logic software talking to Pro Tools hardware, okay? And this is 1998. Oh, wow. And that that system, I worked on it from 9 in the morning until 7 at night, and then he came at 7 at night and worked on it till 6 in the morning <laughs> for a year. And Jeez. it never cracked. It never crashed. It was rock solid as anything. That is amazing. (laughs) It was the secret was to use the Logic software, but the Pro Tools hardware, and be sure to set it up correctly in the computer. So my first introduction to computer recording was, okay, this guy set up a system that does not fail, that is only waiting for me to record all the time. I don't have to set up a a tape on it. I don't have to rewind the tape. I don't have to get the levels on the tape. It's all in the computer, and it comes back with the same levels every time I open the project. So for me, my introduction to computer recording was it was all plus. It was all positive. It sounded perfect. It never failed, and it allowed me to work faster than I ever worked before, and you know, more creatively. That's you have to be like the first producer I've talked to from that era who uh, had like a positive, I mean, I shouldn't say positive, like it was all bad, but like the first one where like, yeah, they like, I've had so many nightmare stories of it, just pro tools shitting the bed and just really just malfunctioning back in that day. So, I mean, that's great. That's great. You had such a positive start with it. Yeah. It's because I had this genius studio partner named Scott Clark who by the age of about 25, he was teaching computer art design at Parsons University. So this guy was just, you know, the right kind of guy. If I had to set up the computer myself, or if anything goes wrong with my computer, even now, 
I don't know how to fix a computer. I don't know how to, you know, mess around and fix something. I only have to work with something that works, you know. And so once he showed me that it's possible to have systems that work, I stuck with that idea. <laughs> I think that was a smart idea. When it, when it, yeah, yeah. When it came for the songs for Is This It, did the band come in pretty much with all the songs we hear on the record written, or how much of that was kind of written while they were in studio? I have to think that a huge 90% of it was written and rehearsed like rocket science. And there might have been a couple newer songs, and there were some songs that didn't have finished lyrics, and there might have been a question about a solo or... Maybe the last song, Is This It? I don't know, could have been something, that's the last song we worked on, could have been kind of developing along the way. But by and large, there wasn't a lot of time just sitting around waiting for art to materialize. Do you remember, like, and I'm trying to, th- I guess maybe not all of them, but I know like Barely Legal going from uh, the modern AGP to Is, Is This It? has some uh, changes to it musically, like things like that. Do you remember if they, if by that time they already kind of, you know, changed them up by the time they came to the studio? Or is that something that by that time you're like, all right, we're going to re-record this and we'll fix it there? Knowing those guys, they heard the EP, they listened to it over and over and over again. And by the time <laughs> they came back three, four months later, they already had a million criticisms like make the guitar solo shorter, play at a faster tempo, use a click track, be more steady, do this chord voicing, use this sound. They, I'm sure they had a hundred ideas on all <laughs> of those songs wanted to do different because they're those kind of people. How about, I want to get into, uh, including like guitar tones, which sound great on the record. I'm just going from what I hear, but I'm assuming a lot of like smaller amps, some vintage tube amps. Like I don't feel like there's huge half stacks and stuff on this. Maybe I'm wrong, but like what were the main amps and stuff that were uh, being used on? Is this it? Famously, famously, uh, Nick Valencia and Albert Hammond Jr. Used the same amp, you know, they each had a Fender DeVille, blues DeVille, whatever they're called, uh, Fender DeVille and one pedal called a Jekyll and Hyde fuzz pedal that was like clean distortion and a heavy distortion. And then they each had one guitar that they played, um, the eggshell Strat for Albert and the whatever that thing is, Epiphone kind of thing with a special pickup put in it by his uh, guru, J.P. Bowersock. And so that was it. You know, they had these very loud, but not huge <laughs> amplifiers and these good one guitar. And I use one microphone on each cabinet and that was it. Wow. I did. I did not know that. That is like my next few questions were pedals and amps and stuff like that. That's amazing. All of that was pretty much just out of a handful of things then not a lot of, uh, experimenting with like amps and guitars or, and stuff. Well, Yeah. And I'll tell you the most impressive thing that you may or may not know about that record. There's two really impressive things when I look at it that blow my mind and they blow every, I, I tour around the world a lot and I, I give lectures about how I recorded it and I show these little slides of what we did. So we basically used nine tracks of audio on that, on every song on that album. You know what I mean? That means like nine tracks, just one not- guitar track. Like nine, there's no no overdub. There's no doubling. There's no reverb. 
There's no extra tambourines or percussion. It's just like this band with a few microphones, and that's all you get. That's all Jeez. you hear. Nine. Like I use more microphones for one drum set now than nine. <laughs> I use like eleven microphones on a drum kit these days. You know. Holy shit. So when you look at when you look at these logic sessions, they're mostly like empty pages with a few small stripes of audio on them. And then on top of that, there were very few edits. Like if you look at the tracks where the band is playing, there's not a lot of cuts. That You know, that doesn't then, make sense because it has a live vibe to it. Like even if it wasn't recorded live, like because of the lack. It was. Oh, it was recorded live. Pretty much, pretty much except for the voice. Pretty much, yeah. Oh, shit. Because I was going to say, like, that is, I think that's one of the things that make it sound great, too, is though the production sounds good, you never went overboard with it. You know what I mean? Which, again, it makes sense. You're a fan. You you understood, I think, the influences that they were going for. And you didn't do shit on there that was, like, you know, really hard to replicate or, like, you know, like too much of anything. Like, it's all this really, like, that's why that, that makes sense. It's live. Because, yeah, you don't hear a whole lot of other added added things to it was that uh were were they kind of like that when they came in like just kind of like we want it stripped back they didn't say stripped back they just said like you know we were talking very the very beginning of the ep of the demo like what i asked i asked what i would ask anybody so what are we doing here what do you like what do you want me to where are we going with this and they just said something that was very telltale they said whatever everybody else is doing right now is what we don't want to do. And that actually gave me a lot of clues because what everybody was doing was celebrating the new pro tools with 60 tracks of audio, 60 dude. Wow. And I said, if you want to, if you want to do what people aren't doing right now, go out there and play your songs and I'll record it with those few microphones that are out there right now. And that'll be completely different than what anyone else is doing. I promise. And, and that's what we did. It, it's funny too then. So like, I mean, at the time, do you, do you remember? Cause I feel like production is like the sound of that record is very important. I think it plays such a big role in the charm of it and the sound of it. Like at that time, then do you remember getting comments on the sound of the record? Because now I feel like it doesn't sound like a certain time. I don't feel like it sounds 20 years old. It could be out today, but at that time I feel right. like then you were doing stuff that kind of went more back in time. Like, do, do you feel like people got that at the beginning or were you, did it take people time to come around and go like, Oh, like this is really like this really simple way of recording and stuff. And like, you know, just, just the lack of extra stuff. Maybe this is the way to go. Um, I gotta say there was a couple ideas that the strokes had that really affected the sound of that recording that I would never have thought of. And I'm going to tell you what those are. This is a secret. Okay. Nice. They told me that they told me to turn the kick drum down and not have it be so big. And like I thought to myself, what are you talking about? Like every band wants this kick drum the size of, you know, Mount Everest. And I finally learned after years of hard work how to do that. And this band is telling me to turn down the kick drum. Like what the <laughs> hell? But so that really was, the next thing was listen listen to what they told me. They said, Hey Gordon can you take the bass out of the bass? And I, I just shook my, I, I, I shook my head. I shook my head. I said, take the bass out of the bass? What would, that, what would that even sound like? So I get my EQ and I roll down the bass and it's this little like ding, 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 this little sound. 
And they go, yeah, that's cool. <laughs> so, okay. So now we're having a live rock band with a small sounding kick drum and a kind of a not bassy bass. Okay. <laughs> let's see where, let's see where this goes. So that was some of the interesting stuff that they contributed and I, and I listened to and I did it, of course. And then, yeah, half the people, young people, British people, the record label in England, they were jumping up and down saying, this is the coolest sound we ever heard. We love this sound. And half the people were writing reviews that said, Gordon Raphael must be a guy who doesn't know anything about recording. This is some of the worst sounding stuff we've ever heard. Doesn't even know where he, I think he doesn't know where to put the microphone. You know, it sounds like the microphones weren't even near the instruments. What the hell is this? So bad, such terrible recording. We had 50-50 from the get-go. How did how did the label, I guess, take it? Because I don't, I guess, again, it being such a different album at the time, were they cool? I mean, I guess that may be the reason they signed them. So maybe they're cool with that. Or were they? Were even they, like, at the beginning, like, wow, like, what is this? There's two labels. There's Rough Trade in England, and there's RCA in the United States. Okay, RCA is a major, and Rough Trade is supposed to be an indie. Okay? Mm-hmm. So Rough Trade signed the demo because they loved that sound. That's why they signed it. If that same demo had gone to RCA and there hadn't been a buzz, the demo would have been in the trash can before anyone had even had a chance to listen to it. I promise you. But because of the buzz, they signed the band and they went for it. Now, I wrote a book recently. I'm looking for a publisher right now where I talk about all this stuff in micro detail. So I'm not going to give all the surprises away, but let's just say when representatives from Rough Trade Records came from England and heard uh, New York City cops for the first time, they threw their hat up in the air and jumped up and started yelling and screaming with joy. Okay? <laughs> That's awesome. When, when RCA Records in New York City heard that same track, they came to the Strokes and said, Gordon Raphael must be fired, and we have a much bigger budget for you if you will please work with a real record producer. Oh okay? my God. So, yeah, I almost got fired in the middle of that recording because RCA thought that I was a clown and making the worst sounds ever. <laughs> it's so, again, it's like, and I love talking about this 20 years later because, I mean, a modern classic, the per- like, Honestly, like when I really started getting to the strokes, I truly loved the product. Like that's one of the first things I feel like you notice. I mean, at least if you, if you're into music and stuff, you do notice the production on those, on the stuff you worked on. And like, now I go, it's genius. Look at how many people have since replicated you basically or ripped you off to be honest. And, uh, yeah, to like, think of that and go, we don't get it. Or this guy is insane. I mean that's that's really interesting. So some of the some of them probably weren't on your side then until the record came out and started selling and then maybe they changed their minds. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I mean there's this one guy who was like a high high president of RCA and every now and then I see I see him at like modern stroke shows like last like before the pandemic I saw him and he acts very friendly towards me. Yes, he he, he's always very kind to me. Um, but some of the other people that were working there, I haven't seen them and, you know, and they never came around and like patted me on the back or said like, (laughs) dude, 
you know, that is a cool sounding wreck. I never got that from the main guys. <laughs> there, it's probably their ego going. We we don't get this, and then all of a sudden it sells. You know, insane amount of copies, and uh, you know, not wanting to admit they're wrong. But as far as far as your produ- as the roles of producer on Is This It? What do you feel like your biggest job was? Like what? Like if you look back at it, what do you think? Like your I biggest? Thing I know was? what it was. I know what it was. I had five guys who were very smart and very vocal, and they had their guru J.P. Bowersock as well as a sixth guy, and all of them were talking to me for twelve hours a day. You know, from three in the afternoon until seven in the morning, or however many hours that is. I don't know how long we were working, and so six guys were talking to me all the time asking me if we could please concentrate on this and can we make this better and can we fix that? Can we make this louder, brighter, lesser? So my biggest contribution was I became a channel for six people to tell me their desires and how they wanted to hear something. And I did my utmost best to give them uh, proper attention so they could hear their ideas. I think that's what I did. I like that. I And really, to be honest, I feel like that's a producer's role. Like, I mean, one, be a good musician and convey it and stuff, but just being a musician, I don't feel like is enough to be a good producer. You need to have that. Like, obviously, you're able to talk to them and, like, you know, convey it through different people and different outlets. So, I mean, that, that I mean, to you, to your credit, I mean, I think is, uh, is huge the whole thing. I think a huge part of being a producer. And, I mean, also going down that down that route, I wanted to ask you, like, what are some traits you think a producer should have? Like, what what are the things you should go in? If you're planning on not just recording your own music, but you want to actually go handle uh-huh. someone else's art, like, what do you think you need to possess to be a good producer? Uh, I guess there's two two types of producers that I'm aware of. And maybe some very special people can do both. Um, one aspect would be to love music and understand music enough and hang around musicians enough to understand how they talk and think so that you can help people realize the music that's coming out of their heads through their instruments and by talking with them and giving them a chance to hear themselves. Okay. So it's like working with artists to help them, whether it's techno artists, jazz artists, classical artists, rock and roll, whatever it is that you want to be involved with, to get into that world enough to be able to make magic happen for those people so that they like you and they feel great and they feel really pleased with their song when they go home. Okay. That's one guy. Another guy can take stuff and he will make it so that radio station, something, something in Los Angeles and record label, blah, blah, blah in New York are going to sign it and play it, you know, like they're very good at understanding what the radio wants and what the you know the the market wants. I am not that guy. I don't really pay attention to the market. I don't even understand how it works. I just know I know the music side coming from a musician. There's certain notes and certain sounds and certain words that make a person go crazy. And I'm interested in that insane feeling that artists have when they discover their own you know, music. That's it. When it came to, uh, like, like for this album, you know, conveying ideas back and forth, whether it be your own idea, whether you're trying to like get an idea, one of them had to another one, 
like how were they with uh i mean basically taking direction in the in the studio i mean it sounds like they they had a good idea of what they wanted but were they pretty good with like when you offered up like hey i think we should do this or that like did they take that pretty well were they good at taking like a producer's direction i would not say that getting direction was something that i was doing with them I would say it was more like I was making a very comfortable place for them to play their music and then comment about it. And then what was really amazing and where the real magical communications took place in that record was how they talked to each other. You know, how do you tell your drummer that, man, you got to keep up the rhythm on the hi-hat and listen to the clip without hurting his feelings and making him play back? Or if two people disagree about something in the same band and they're brothers, they got to talk about it and get it, you know, pretty well settled because where time is ticking. And they knew how to do that. They could tell each other stuff and make suggestions and try stuff from each other in a way that was really impressive for people their age. There wasn't a lot of there wasn't a lot of hurt egos. There wasn't a lot of sad faces. There wasn't a lot of domination going on. It was like real teamwork. That's what I will say. That's cool to hear that a band, including that young, like seemed to have such a already like hard work ethic kind of, I feel like they understood what they wanted. Like by the sounds of it, like this was not just a bunch of 20 year olds who were kind of like messing around on, on a recording or something like they seemed to know kind of what they wanted out of this coming in, which I'm sure you recording young bands is not something you get from every single young band who comes in to work with you. Yeah, and, you know, it is very possible that when they first heard the playbacks on the demo and they go like, oh, man, this guy with his three microphones and his weird equipment in there, you know, they didn't understand the equipment. They don't know what preamps or compressors or EQs are. They just, okay, I'm going to play my drums. And, oh, that's a cool sound. So I think it was like the confidence of hearing those original sounds coming back. And then when they told me they wanted something louder and quieter, I did it. And they liked it even better. So I think it was like the original experience of hearing their music in a way that they loved gave them the confidence to like take over, you know, and like, okay, since we can do that, let's try this. Let's now we're going to do this kind of song. And so it was really interesting, really very great watching them do it. That's really cool. And I mean, like, like too with, I mean, there's so many cool sounds and stuff that you get out of, out of uh, just them, them as a whole on, is this it? One one specific I got to ask you, I'm, I have to imagine you get asked this a lot, but like one of the ones I want to know how you got like that drum, the drums on hard to explain. I mean, which at first I'm still going, is that a drum machine? Is that a real kit? I mean, like, how do you get a sound like that? Like, how did you even get some of that out? Like, I know you said you're also working on a book, so you don't have to give too much away. But I mean, this is something I uh, would love to get into a little bit. Yeah, I've been enjoying answering this and doing it for 20 years, so here we go. Oh, I'm um, excited. Yeah, well, Julian came to me and he said, I got a little bit of an issue. What's that, Julian? I made the demo of this song using my drum machine, and I just love the way my drum machine sounds. you know. But at the same time, there's Fab. How am I going to tell him that he's not going to be on a song on his own album, a first album? Like, how, What am I going to do? And it didn't take me more than one second because he asked a great question. I worked 
in industrial music all through like the 90s, okay? This new form of music that was coming out of Chicago and Vancouver where everything was drum machines and everything was electronic and really heavy and distorted and freaked out. So for me, I said, dude, I just answered immediately, dude, show me the drum machine you're using and I can make any drum sound like a drum machine. I know how drum machines work. I've used them for years. I know what makes a drum machine sound like a drum machine and I can do the same thing for a real drum kit, you know? So in that case, we did not record the whole band together because on a drum machine, you do not hear guitars bleeding into the hi-hat mic. When you press the button for the hi-hat, you just get a little sound, you know? Mm -hmm. So I recorded the drums, just playing the different beats. And then I used plugins and I extreme compression and gates and EQ and I just uh, made it made the real drums sound like a robotic machine that is insane I mean okay? it, it's it's insane that is so cool it was really fun and it was also fun because I knew I could do it and they had no idea if I could do it and what I was going to do and then by the end of the day they're like all like kind of slapping themselves on the back and going, that is so cool. That is so cool. Oh my God. <laughs> Listen to that Good drum machine. You know, they were really happy about it. That is, that is awesome. And I mean, for you to be able to just do it like that, then was that, I take it then you had, you had done drums in the past kind of like that. I mean, you'd played around then kind of replicating a sound like I don't, that before. I, I never, never really played. I never really did that. I never no. tried to make drums, but at the same time in my own band, I would have like drum machines playing and then a real drum playing over it. And that means I had to cut the real drums a lot to try to line them up to the perfect automated drums. Like we oh can God. do it easier now. There's easier techniques now. But in those days, even a good drummer would get off from the snare, off from the hi-hats. And I would, so I got really good at cutting those drums and like moving them right into place and blending the tones together it was something I'd thought about for a long time, about drums, drum machines, them together, separately. So when that question was asked, it was just like, you know, asking a baker if they can make some bread. It was like, oh, yeah, <laughs> dude, Here's, watch this, watch this, and like that. Were there, uh, are there any other examples? I mean, that, that just, I'm sure there's a ton, but like to just kind of pop in your head of like unconventional or like, weird ways that you recorded anything else on that record that even you were kind of like, I like, we just, I guess we'll try it this way. Like, you know, like it's a little different, but. Mm, I think maybe I borrowed a friend of mine from Germany's technique and I wrapped a microphone with newspaper and stuck it between the hi-hats once, I think on a song. That's interesting. Uh, that was just something I was thinking about and I did it one day and yeah, I think the big surprise was the when they played their music in my studio room with my equipment and my recording technique, the sound that came out into my speakers, both on Is This It and Room on Fire, were very surprising. Like, that's what I like about recording. It's why I started doing it when I was about 19. I'm still doing it today because... You never know what you're going to come up with, you know. Even though you know how to use a mic and know how to do stuff, if 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 it didn't if it came out exactly as you thought it was going to come out, it would be no fun. It would just be a kind of a boring button pushing job. But when I got these certain mics 
headphones in a certain room and these guys are playing their music, there's these mystery ghost sounds. There's these third X factor things that start blending between the instruments and the mics and the room and the moment, you know, and that's all like you hear, like you listen to Albert Hammond's solo on Take It or Leave It. And, you know, that is the weirdest guitar sound in the world. There's something that happened that that tones he was making were bouncing off the walls of my studio in such a way that it almost sounded 3D to me coming through the speaker. Like what? I was like looking around like, what is happening? What is that crazy (laughs) sound? And yeah, it's a guy playing a guitar solo in your live room with his band. But something about that tone will show you like, you don't know what that is. That's like a crazy guitar sound, an unusual mystery sound. (laughs) I love your enthusiasm. I mean, that, that again, I feel like points to why you're such a good producer. You have that enthusiasm of like, what sounds can we get out of this? Like, how is this going to be? Because you're right. There truly is. You have the music in your head, but the music in your head when it comes out are kind of two different things. And I like your excitement yeah. for what does come out, you know, what it actually is going to be. Well, it's kind of like, I mean, when you think of it, I'm, I feel like a, a ghost hunter. Like, I'm trapping ideas and sounds and things swirling in the air that are going to disappear any second. And I cap my job is to capture them and manipulate them and combine them and then have them for all time. It's a very strange job. Really. It's a strange phenomenon. I mean, <laughs> recording is like collecting. You're always collecting stuff, collecting songs, collecting bands, collecting sounds. It's kind of a weird thing. <laughs> I, I I don't know. I think that is uh that is really cool and, and I wanna get in with you too. I know I'm talking to you right now, um, from England. I mean, how long have you been living over there? What made you move over there? Like I, I would love to get into that for a second. Well, I came to England in two thousand and two, which a few months after the Strokes record was really hitting. This is the sit. And I knew that England was the number one place for Strokes fans. So, and also the Strokes put my picture on the first album, which no band ever puts a pr- picture of their producer on the album. You know, that, that's they very did that. true. So I walked down the street in England, in London in 2002. It's like, oh, there's the guy from the Strokes, you know, who made the Strokes album. Hey, dude, come to our party. Hey, dude, record our band. It was like the greatest thing walking down in London when everybody loved the Strokes. That is so, so that's cool. why I. That's why I originally came to England. I wound up moving to Berlin after that for 15 years. Oh, wow. And I just moved back. I just moved back to England uh, a year and a half, a year and three months ago. Um, just felt like I wanted to come back. Have you, uh, I mean, have you always been, that, that's so interesting to me. Like, have you always been a traveler? Is that more of something that just came with the job? Well, I always wanted to be a rock and roll star and travel around the world. You know, when I saw Led Zeppelin and the Rolling Stones on their private jet when I was a teenager, I thought, you know, dude, that's my job. That's what I want to do. I want to be that guy <laughs> flying around the world and doing rock and roll. That's all I want to do. That's and awesome. it was really hard. It was really hard getting out of Seattle. Like Seattle wasn't a very popular place for musicians until the grunge era in the late 80s and the early 90s. So a lot of time I spent dreaming of traveling around the world and making music. And so my walking papers came when Is This It started becoming popular 
in England and Europe, I said, I'm going over there now. And once I got here, it was like, welcome to the party, dude, you're popular, you're getting work, you know, you have friends, people smile at you, uh, you did some music. It is like, okay. (laughs) That is really fucking, that is really cool. Does that mean, have you done a lot of your, like a bulk of your recording bands then uh, over there or... Or then again, though, I think you brought that up. You still kind of go internationally. Like, you've you've kind of produced all around. I had a studio in London for a while, and I was recording lots of bands in it. But at the same time, I'd be going everywhere. Like, I recorded in Seattle, San Francisco, New York, Argentina. It's, like, one of my most popular places I go. Really? Um, I've I've been in France and Belgium and Brazil, Peru, Mexico City. You know, lots of places to record cool bands. That that is really neat. I mean, obviously with everything going on now, I doubt there's tons of live music. But is there much of a music scene near where you live now? Well, now I got the internet, so bands from everywhere send me music to work on in the pandemic, where I can do stuff at home. Oh, that's true. I can play synth- I can play synthesizers on their music and guitars on their music, and I can mix. You know, and I'm just waiting for the day. I think I have a, a studio session in April, which will be my first time I've been in a studio with live musicians in one year. And uh, it's gonna, I'm going to be excited to get back into that. that. That is very cool. How about, uh, you know, like we were talking about earlier, your, your, ever, uh, like your never-ending quest of balancing your own music and production. Have you, uh, like, have you been writing a lot during the pandemic, writing most of your music lately? Yeah, I've been really, I wrote that book. So I wrote a book for the first half of the pandemic. And now I've been really working on my music. Um, I have a Gordon Raphael Instagram where I put up little videos of my latest things. And just, I got, I've been really into music the last like couple months. Uh, I was just working on a music video when you called me of just making a video for a song I worked on. So that's what I'm doing. You're staying busy. That that is awesome. Writing a book, writing music, doing music videos. Like you, you sounds like you've stayed very busy during uh, all of yeah. this. It just like uh, I have a year where I'm not traveling around working on other people's stuff so much. So when I sit down and go like, "What do you want to do?" Well, I have this one song I haven't finished, and I could do a better mix on this. So there's just, as an artist, there's always like something to do. <laughs> How was the uh, how was the writing of that book? You said that was like the first time you you done something like that, correct? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I love to write, but I never thought I would be able to sit down long enough to make a book. I like <laughs> to move around, to run around. So the fact I had to stay home meant that I had no excuse but to get this book out. And it's just about how I met the Stroke, all our time in New York, every conversation we ever had in the studio. Every argument, every uh, victory, and then what happened after that, you know, all through the time I worked with them. That's awesome. You said you said now you're just kind of looking for a publisher. Yeah, I'm looking for a publisher. And selling a book written by a music producer, I guess, isn't the easiest thing in the world, but I am determined that I'm going to get it out there. I have a feeling that I'll get out. Like, I, I, it sounds really interesting to me. I'm sure there's, uh, I'm sure there's more than enough interest uh, for something like that. I, I I don't think you'll, uh, I feel like you won't have an issue, but then again, you're the one looking for it. So yeah, if you have a cousin who runs a really great publishing company, <laughs> just hook me. Up. Anyone listening to this? I mean, yeah, if you, uh, 
if you if you're in that game or you know someone who is, I mean, hit Gordon up. Yeah. I, I think a lot of us want to see see that book come out. I think people will really like it. There's a lot of secret stories I've been waiting to tell. That that is really cool. How about uh, I mean, I guess your thoughts too, real quick or or whatever. But like with the Strokes finally winning a Grammy, I thought that was awesome. I think it's well deserved. But me, like a lot of other people, I mean, it seems like they probably should have gotten that like 20 years earlier. Okay. Um, At this point, having watched all the artists come and go since the 60s and seeing what happens to people's career and how things work, nothing surprises me whatsoever. And it's always good when people stick around for a couple decades, you know, and don't have giant tragedies and lose things. So the fact (laughs) that they're together, they make, record they got a grammy that's just another fucking happy story for me like good job guys congratulations you know that that is that is cool i also you know as we're like wrapping as we're wrapping up here something i do want to get into i mean obviously we've talked tons now about producing the strokes but throughout your years through your production career i mean are there a few bands that pop up in your head that maybe people might have missed that we should go back and uh, check out maybe some oh, bands that didn't get the same yeah. amount of love. I've recorded so many bands that are just jaw droppingly good. And most of them are, you know, didn't you have a chance to really shine out in the public eye. Um, I don't know the best way to tell you how to find them. <laughs> uh, I know I could send you a list or I could send you a playlist or something, but there's some amazing music I've made in England and New York, you know, Regina Spector, her record, she's popular. Oh, yeah. The record I made record I made with her was just mind-boggling, one of the best things I've ever worked on in my life. Even the Strokes loved that album. So that was one person. And I'll send you a list of about four people that you can check out or four, if you want me to. Yeah, oh, yeah, I'll we'll play them on the show. I'll say, I'll, say their na- I'll say their names right now. Uh, there's a band from this island in Spain called Mallorca, and the band is called Satellites. And it's one of the best things I ever recorded. I recorded like two and a half albums or three albums with them. And then there was a band in England that I fell in love with called Kill Canada. And they were just amazing. And we recorded like 20 or 30 songs also. Those are like two of the best. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah, no, if you uh, if you send me those playlists, we'll get those uh, on the radio show. And uh, we'll, we'll play a couple on the podcast as well. Both of them will. Uh, you gotta get the word out on good music. I feel like people, if you're, if you're into the Strokes, you're obviously, you know, in into I think the stuff you work on. So I'm sure people are interested in uh, hearing what you're like working on and what you have worked on as well throughout the years. I mean, you you've stayed busy the last twenty years. Yeah, I was busy before that too. I mean, <laughs> I was in a really popular band in Seattle during the grunge era, and we were touring the United States and making albums and videos and having a great time. So. Music has taken me on a good journey, for sure. That's cool, and it's cool that you've kind of uh, gotten to do both sides of it. You know, be be behind, you know, working behind the board, and then also, you know, being the performer. I, I think that's uh, that's yeah. very cool, and a, an important part of being a producer too. I think you you kind of touched on earlier, but I think you have to know where people are coming from, like when you handle their, you know, someone else's music and stuff. So being from that side, yeah. I think, also helps. Yeah, I toured in South America in 2018. I released an Ooh. album and I did a tour through like Argentina, Chile, and Brazil. 
we played with my band about you know 40 shows that year is amazing that that is really that is really cool so as we close up here um where can people find you online where can they uh check you out like like all that good stuff if you want to like give us that stuff i have, now. I have a really, really insane website called gordotronic which has like everything i ever did or every thought i ever had is on there and then i of course i have instagram with gordon Raphael name and um i talk to the talk to people every day on that very cool. So people people go find them there. We're going to play some stuff that you've worked on, obviously going to play um, some strokes as well. So what I want to ask you, this will uh, kind of, this will be three songs we play. I want to know your favorite song on Is This It, The Modern AGP, and Room on Fire. If you want to pick one from each, we'll uh, definitely make sure one you know each of those get played. Sure. Okay. Yeah, Under Control from Room on Fire. Um, let's see, trying your luck from is this it and the modern age from the modern AGP. Very, very good choices. And uh, also, I mean, I know we didn't, we didn't get into it. We're, we're talking about, is this it? But as far as recording the follow-up, was that a, was that by that time, do you feel like we don't have to get tons into it, but like, was that a smoother process going into the follow-up? Do you feel like after you'd already done the EP and the first full length with them? No, it wasn't necessarily smoother. It was fun and challenging in different ways. Uh, that went to three months for that album. And uh, the band was, I mean, for me, they were tighter and more powerful because they'd been touring for two years every night playing concerts. So when I got them for Room on Fire, they were a fighting machine, like a rock and roll army. It, you know, they'd gone from kind of kids in a basement having fun and sounding great to like this incredible like Led Zeppelin tight rock and roll band. So that was amazing. And um, I think also all that touring kind of mentally freaked them out. I think they were drained and tired from doing it. And that had a psychological effect uh, while we were making the second album, for sure. Really? Well, thank you. Uh, I mean, Gordon, this is awesome. We've been talking the Strokes, 20th anniversary of the modern age, and is this it? We're going to play some stuff from The Strokes now. We're going to play some other stuff from uh, Gordon's career. We'll play some of uh, your music as well. We'll get all that on here. So that is it right here. I want to thank Gordon Raphael once again for coming on this episode of the Power Chord Hour. Go, 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 go
right here on the Power Chord Hour podcast. That was a block of strokes for you. All those songs produced by Gordon Raphael. That was the strokes with Under Control off their second record, Room on Fire. Before that, off their debut, Is This It, celebrating 20 years this year, was Trying Your Luck. And opening up that block of music, also celebrating 20 years this year, was The Modern Age, off the band's very first demo and EP, The Modern Age EP. All right, I got to thank Gordon once again. I mean, that was just awesome. Um, I mean, really, like, like the Strokes being such a big, like, you think about it, like, talking to him, and it truly is interesting, including as someone who really didn't get into them until years later, but, like, to think that, like, New York never embraced them in the beginning, that, like, guitar bands weren't really a thing for a while, you know, and, and it's kind of funny, because I guess 20 years later, we're going through that again right now, kind of with, like, guitars in the mainstream and everything, but like there is there's a lot of truth to that. And it's like you look at you look at what happened with the strokes afterwards, and even though maybe now we're not uh you know, we're not in a time of like, you know, rock and roll renaissance or whatever, it's like at that time, I mean, how many other garage rock revival bands or just kind of alternative bands kind of went and and did what the strokes were doing? You know, I mean the strokes really you kind of forget that twenty years later, I think, but like they really did open the doors for a lot of things. And, uh, you know, even though they got huge and I mean, you know, is this, it is a huge record as well. Um, you know, there wasn't much there beforehand, you know, like he was talking about, I mean, you can hear their influences, but there is truth to that. It's like, those are influences of bands, you know, 30 years prior who, yes, you know, commercially later on, maybe they, uh, maybe they sold a little better or at least like people started going to the shows, but like the stooges, the velvet underground, like, they didn't have gold records. They weren't big when they came out. You know, it was kind of like retroactive. But, you know, I guess if you're thinking of like 99, 2000, 2001, you know, those bands aren't the, uh, you know, they're not the thing that's being talked about. So, again, culturally and like thinking about at the time and everything, it's like it is crazy to look back differently like that and go like, yeah, like at the time, like, you know, this wasn't what was going on in pop culture. So uh, very cool to talk to someone who uh, was a part of it all. And I mean, just a just a pleasure to talk to. I mean, Gordon, from the beginning of hitting him up to see if he would come on this show, um, absolutely sweet guy. I mean, just absolutely so cool. Love talking to him. I mean, I'm, I'm just such a big fan of uh, what he's done and just re- questions I've had for years, like since hearing Is This It? So uh, yeah, to be able to uh, talk to him was very, very cool. I believe he was also our first guest ever that uh calling calling from England we uh I, we've had Paul Cook and uh you know he is uh, obviously from England but uh he was calling I think from like New York City or somewhere here in the states when uh, we did that interview so uh yeah Gordon I believe was the very first person to uh, ever ever be on the show via England which was uh pretty cool but yeah, such an interesting life. Same with that. Like, I even just love that aspect. I talk about traveling on here, and I mean, I've, I've never traveled abroad like that. I mean, I would not compare that. That man has seen a lot more of the uh, world than I have. But, uh, you know, that side of it also interests me that, uh, you know, going and moving over there, you know, moving to England, moving around, going around, you know, all these different places to produce bands. Like, I think, uh, like, Gordon does it right. You know what I mean? Gordon does it right. And uh, he was just a blast to talk to. And yeah, hopefully too, I, I'm sure I'm not the only one uh, interested in that book he was talking about. So hopefully he'll find a, a publisher for that. You know, I could also see that being crowdfunding too. I uh, should have me- mentioned that to him. I, I was thinking it later on, but it's like, I feel like that could be crowdfunded. You know what I mean? Like I I, I feel like enough Strokes fans would be uh, really into that. Because again, it's like 
what you have to realize with him, and I'm sure you did listen to that, but it's like he wasn't just like a producer on one record. Like he's so responsible for the sound of that first demo, of that first record, of that second record. And uh, he did produce a few, I think he produced three songs off their uh, third record as well. I think originally he was supposed to do the whole album, and uh, I don't know what happened, but he did produce, I know, Razorblade, and I can't remember the other two. Razorblade, I think, is the best song off the uh, third record, so it totally makes sense. But like, he really had a lot to do with the strokes, more than maybe people realize. So a big book would like tell all and like getting into recording and all these different things and stories, I think would be absolutely amazing. So hopefully we see that that uh, released. But yeah, I just want to thank him again. That was awesome. I hope you enjoyed it. And uh, yeah, that was a that was a really cool guest to have on. I was very stoked. I know we uh, we've we've had Zach and Kyle on a few times. My buddies, which is uh, very rad. But this year we've only had a few guests so far because we did our little break. But I got to say the ones that we've had. Um, I feel like are very, very strong. I've been very, very excited to uh, talk to everyone so far. So, yeah, very excited. Stay connected with the show online. Make sure you know next time we have a, a guest on. I always uh, spill the beans on there, but follow us at Power Chord Hour on Twitter, on Instagram, on Facebook. Just search Power Chord Hour on there. You will find us. We're on Spotify. We put up playlists every week um, from the radio show, a bunch of other places. Or like for different things, you know, like Power Chord, Crash Course playlists, different stuff like that. So you can find music on our Power Chord, our uh, Spotify page. You can also find the podcast there. Uh, radio show, new radio show every Friday night, 10 Eastern to midnight on 107.9 WRFA in Jamestown, New York. You can listen from anywhere, WRFALP.com. You can stream the station on our website there. And uh, it's kind of cool. I mean, we're going to be airing this interview. If you're listening week this comes out, this will also air on the radio show and uh, something that we did get to do that we didn't get to do on here is Gordon sent me a big old playlist of stuff. So, like, Gordon picked out, like, half the songs for this week's radio show, which was pretty cool. I uh, asked them, as you heard in that interview, I asked them for, like, you know, a couple songs that, uh, you know, from his own catalog, you know, his own uh, music, as well as some bands that he's produced. And uh, some really good stuff that I'd never heard before. And then a few that I had, like Regina Spector and stuff that he sent me. But, uh, you know, really good stuff. So we'll, we'll also play that on the radio show this week. Very cool. And uh, if you would, rate and review the show. That helps so much. And uh, as a thank you, if you go rate and review us on iTunes, send me a screenshot, and I'll send you a Power Chord Hour t-shirt absolutely free. Hit me up, powercordhour at gmail.com. You just send the screenshot there or social media. Just send me a screenshot of the review, and uh, I'll send you a t-shirt. But, yeah, if you uh, subscribe, if you rate, if you review, that uh, that just really, really helps the show. And uh, I can't thank you enough. So that is how I'll thank I won't be able to thank you enough, but I will thank you in the form of a T-shirt and some stickers. And uh, also those stickers are free even without a uh, without a review. If you just want some free Power Chord Hour uh, stickers, just hit me up, powercordhour at gmail.com. And, uh, yeah, that is, that is it for uh, this episode. Tune back in next week. I'm going to be doing the uh, March Rundown. Crazy that we are already going into April of this year. This year, it just will not slow down. It may be going even faster than 2020 was, which was not something I thought 2020 would do, but it did fly by. It did not drag on. It flew the fuck by, and uh, I think it's happening again this year. But we'll be doing the March Rundown next week, talking about uh, music, talking about what's going on in uh, the world of music, in my world, and uh, just new music coming out, all that good stuff. So tune back in for that next week. And uh, yeah, I'm going to leave you right now with one of Gordon's songs, actually. I'll leave you with one more off his uh, his first solo record from a few years back here that he put out called Sleep on the Radio. 
Go check it out. This is a song off it right now. Here is Gordon Raphael with Deep Psyche, and this is what we will close out this uh, podcast with. So for the Power Chord Hour, I'm Anthony Merchant. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you.